want you to imagine a situation with me as we begin today. Imagine that you just spent an entire day cleaning and tidying your home, or your apartment, or your room, or wherever you live. Now, if you never clean your place, you'll have to really use your imagination, okay? But imagine, all the dishes get washed, all the laundry gets washed and folded and put away, all the, all the clutter everywhere, the books, movies, toys, electronics, whatever you have, gets put away, papers get filed, you even clean your toilet or mop the floor. Then imagine you get a surprise knock on the door, and a couple of friends invite themselves in, and they immediately begin to ruin all of your hard work. They begin to trash the place. Right? They, as they take their shoes off, dirt or mud or leaves or snow gets all over your floor, and they drop whatever they're carrying, their purses or backpacks are all over the place on the furniture, the tables, the floor. And then while well, one of them goes and uses the washroom, the other one ransacks the fridge. And just before you know it, there is food and dishes and phones and toys everywhere. Such is life with small children. <laughs> but that's not my point with this illustration. Such is also how the so-called friends of Job viewed life as a whole. They believed that there was a clear order to things. That it was like they had developed all these pristinely clean beliefs in their minds. Everything was orderly, and everything made sense. Everything was clean. That is until Job's situation knocked on their door. And life got messy. Job was like an unwelcome house guest who was messing up, who was threatening to tear their house apart and jeopardizing their tightly held moral system. And I think that maybe we should allow Job's story to mess up our house a bit as well. If we should let it mess up our lives, if it brings us closer to the true reality of God and his nature and the true reality of what our lives really are like. So continuing Job, his friends just keep presenting their simple system to Job over and over again, and Job just keeps rejecting it as too simplistic, Life is more complicated than they make it. However, even as Job feels confused and hopeless, there's also clearly a confidence and a certainty that is growing in him. That even as he spreads his mess around the house, he's thinking, this is starting to make sense. I know some things to be true. And the same goes for us. That though life's messiness sometimes creates more questions, sometimes creates uncertainty, other times it only helps provide clarity and certainty of certain things that we believe in. We'll see this happen together today, especially to Job. If you would, please turn with me to Job chapter 18. Job chapter 18. That'll, if you're using one of the pew Bibles that are in front of you, that's on page 428. Page 428. 
And if you're new with us and none of what I just said makes sense, okay, Job was this guy from ancient times whose story is recorded for us in the Bible, in the book named after him. And we've been studying him now for a few months together. But Job was once an extremely rich, extremely godly man who went through a disastrous trial, a disastrous fall. He lost his livestock and his workforce, his family, his health, in a very short period of time. He was broken beyond what we can imagine, living in misery in a dump. And now, as we're in the middle here, Job is surrounded by a few choice friends who had intended to comfort him, but instead just couldn't stop judging him. Those, these are the people whose pristine system he was messing up. But before we see how Job does this again today, would you, I think we should pause and pray together. All right, would you do that with me? Let's bow our hearts and, and pray to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we do pray as we look into your word that you would give us clarity, that you would give us certainty of what we believe. I pray that you would help us see your truth today through these words. May your spirit convict us and encourage us. May your word change our lives today, even in some small way, that we would go forth from here changed by you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. At this point in Job's story, Job and all three of his comforters had their say at least once. And last week began a second cycle of speeches where everyone will speak up again. And we saw Eliphaz last week recycle his thoughts first. He's like, only wicked people suffer like you're suffering, Job. So you need to start humbly fearing God. But Job responded by saying, well, no, God has broken me regardless of how righteous I am. And though overall Job was pretty hopeless, I mean the last chapter title is called Where Then Is My Hope? He's overall pretty hopeless. He also showed moments of incredible trust in God. Like he said, even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. He who testifies for me is on high. So even though he felt like God was attacking him, he also trusted that God would defend him. But in chapter 18, his friends still don't sense his heart of trust in God. They think Job was being blind and overconfident because he was still suffering. And if he was truly good with God, God would have relieved his sufferings by now, surely. But since God wasn't saving him, they thought it was revealing the opposite was true. And Bildad is the friend who tries to show him these truths again here. He basically takes what Eliphaz says last week and says, Amen! Let's go ahead and read what he says. First four verses, he essentially tells Job, Stop! Okay, first, stop talking! Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you hunt for words? Consider, like stop and think, and then we will speak. Job, you're not thinking things through. You're grasping at straws. It says Job was hunting for words. Apparently Job was struggling to speak. And now this reminds us, don't think of all Job's words as confident sermons, okay? They were 
much more often confused and painful groans. You remember that? Verse 3, why are we counted as cattle? Why are we stupid in your sight? Stop insulting us. Okay? Do you really think we're as dumb as cows? So stop talking, stop insulting. Lastly, stop thinking you're so special. Verse 4, you who tear yourself in your anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you or the rock be removed out of its place? And this is what I was talking about earlier. Job was messing up what they saw as the well-ordered nature of the world. Okay, For Job, a sinner, to ask God to bless him, might as well move the mountains. So, Job, do you really want the universe to be redesigned to suit you? Do you... Want the earth to shake for you? You for maps to have to be redrawn? The message in the message it paraphrases Bildad asking, should reality be suspended to accommodate you? Job, you're not that special. God won't come down to talk to you. Mountains don't move. So stop tearing yourself up in anger. Stop getting so worked up over this. And now this, all what he just said, would seem to be pretty reasonable advice. If we didn't already know that Job was special. Right? God's told us that in his word. Job was special. Also, if some of us didn't already know the end of the story when Bildad is proven dead wrong, But to them, at this time, Job was rejecting common sense morality, re- resisting the obvious truths that were out there. Job, you should know all this. Since you obviously don't, I guess I'll have to tell you again. Maybe if I repeat this enough times, eventually you'll get it. Verse 5, Indeed, The light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. That indeed shows he's affirming and echoing what Eliphaz said earlier. Wicked people end up miserable. And look at yourself, Job. Here's Bildad's main point he tries to get across here, and it's going to sound familiar. If we refuse to know God, we will suffer and perish. Okay? The wicked, those who refuse to know God, will suffer and perish. Guaranteed. He stated this main thought in verse 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out. He repeats it at the end of the chapter in verse 21. He says, Surely there, are, surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. And in between those verses, Bildad paints a scary picture of, of the fate of the ungodly. Look again, verse 5. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. Have you ever tried to light a match or a candle outside when there's a little bit of wind? (laughs) I was just trying to do that pretty recently, a couple weeks ago, and having an unbelievable hard time doing it. 
I'd get the candle lit and try to shield it from the wind with my hand, but it'd just keep blowing out again and again. And one time I thought for sure I got it lit, and then I accidentally blew it out myself. <laughs> but Bildad was saying that the wicked are like these little flames. They may flicker for a moment, but they're inevitably snuffed out, consumed by darkness. Their lamps go out in their homes. And Bildad piles up metaphor after metaphor to to make the same point. The wicked suffer and perish. Look at verse 7. His strong steps are shortened and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground. A trap for him in the path. So verse 7 talks about them having strong steps with powerful, confident strides. But what happens? Their life inevitably trips them up. Their lifestyle backfires like a trap, like a a bear trap or a a bird snare. Verse 9, a trap seizes him by the heel. A snare lays hold of him. So nets and mesh and traps and snares and ropes. The ungodly will be tripped up and they'll be caught. This point. But not only are the wicked caught in their wickedness, they end up terrified, plagued. Look in verse 11. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. Now, the terrors spoken there in, in verse 11 could refer to demons haunting him, haunting the wicked like dogs nipping at their heels. As Francis Anderson comments, if demons cause the terrors, they are demons of famine, disease, and death. It's a grisly picture. And then he paraphrases. He says, his plump body becomes emaciated. His ribs stick out. Disease corrodes his skin. Death's eldest son swallows his organs. There's a couple references to some mysterious figures there in those verses. The, the firstborn of death in verse 13 and the king of terrors in verse 14. For us, we can probably picture the grim reaper here be a good parallel, okay? A a metaphorical and and terrifying manifestation of death itself. Can you picture the horror of verse 18? He is torn from the tent in which he trusts and is brought to the king of terrors. So the wicked man thought he was safe and sound in his tent, in his home, but no, when he least expected, probably in the middle of the night, he's dragged out from his tent, kicking and screaming, and handed over, presented to death itself. Bildad goes on to say that the wicked inevitably lose all that they own. Verse 15, the guests in my house, and oh sorry, I skipped ahead. Verse 15, in his tents dwell that which is none of his. Okay, he's, he's lost it all. And that wherever he lives will be utterly destroyed. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. You know the smell of sulfur? Kind of like rotten eggs. It's 
nauseating. In Scripture, it's often used to describe the smell of judgment and desolation. And when the wicked are judged by God, it says, well, they'll also, they've lost all they own, they've lost their homes, they'll also lose any kind of hope for legacy. Verse 16, his roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. It is like their lives end up completely wasted. Verse 18, he is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people and no survivor where he used to live. And people just end up horrified by what happened. Verse 20, they of the West are appalled at his day and horror seizes them of the East. Surely, Such are the dwellings of the unrighteous. Such is the place of him who knows not God. Oh, you're suffering like this, Job? What a coincidence. This is what happens to the wicked, and only to them. So... Draw your own conclusions, Job. Now, a lot of what Bildad claims is fairly good and true, even though it can be scary. As it says, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he cannot be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. I'm sorry, those weren't Bildad's words. Those were King David's from Psalm 37. Sounds fairly similar, doesn't it? It's because there is some truth in Bildad's claims. One thing that Bildad was definitely correct on, knowing God is the key to the universe. Okay, Knowing the one true God is what separates the righteous from the unrighteous. The various sins that people struggle with are really not their deepest problems. Sins are the outflow of refusing to know, love, and worship God as God. And Bildad says... Verse 21, surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. This is true. Read Romans 1, for example. God's wrath is revealed against those who suppress the truth of God. But Bildad's spiel here is also littered with serious problems as well. Since Bildad was echoing Eliphaz's argument from last week, the same critiques we made about Eliphaz's speech actually apply to Bildad. So I'll just list those really quick. He was naive to think the wicked always suffer like this. His application was severely misdirected when he was directed at Job. And in lumping Job in with the ungodly, Bildad was unkindly judgmental as well as just plain unhelpful. 
He wasn't caring for Job. I'm puzzled when I read the... I'm puzzled at how Job's friends could realistically believe some of the things they said to him. Because if they were honest in evaluating the world, they'd see that they often aren't true. Right? The, the wicked sometimes do prosper quite a bit. But apparently they believed in their tidy system so strongly that it filtered everything else out. And they either didn't notice the discrepancies or they just dismissed them altogether. And I, and I guess it really shouldn't surprise us since so many Christians do the exact same thing today. We expect immediate short-term rewards from God for godly behavior. And, on the other hand, we think that if we're walking closely with God, if we're in his perfect will or whatever, we won't suffer. Both are sometimes true. But more often than not, both are false. The other word I'd use to describe the issue with Bildad's words here is that they were premature. They're premature. Here's what I mean by that. Bildad's speech could have been an excellent sermon on hell. Hell is the place of eternal torment that all unrepentant sinners will go to in eternity. And it is a place that every single one of us deserves to go to. Because of our blatant and constant rebellion against God. Elsewhere, Scripture describes hell as a place of darkness, punishment, terror, suffering, pain, loss, and death. Sound comparable? Let me be clear. The unbelieving wicked will experience hell. Guaranteed. However, when will they experience hell? In eternity. Not now. Bildad was certain that the wicked would face hell on earth in the present or the short-term future, and therefore his words were extremely premature. If we refuse to know God, we will suffer and perish. Here's something Bildad missed. Knowing God may be the key to the universe, to salvation, to righteousness, to joy, but knowing God is not the key to avoiding suffering. We'll see this in Job's response. Know, K-N-O-W, is a very important word in these two chapters. Bildad was implying, you don't know God. And Job replies, Yes, I do know God. I know other things as well that are very that are equally important. And the, here's the first thing he tries to explain. Again, he says, we can know God and still suffer and perish. We can know God and yet still suffer and perish. Not in hell, mind you, but on this fallen earth. The righteous can suffer and die as well. Job first tells Bildad, stop tormenting me. You've got no right to judge me anyway. Look what he says in the beginning of chapter 19. 
Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me, and you are, and are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. Job's like, let's play the devil's advocate for a second and say, I do deserve this. Even if I do, it's still none of your business. It's between me and God. All you're doing by judging me is raising yourselves above me. Verse 5, if indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me. It's like, whether consciously or not, Job's friends were making themselves look good. Magnifying themselves. Like, we know better than you, or we are better than you, because we're not suffering and you are. So Job was like, you think you know God? You think you know better than me? then I've got something else you need to know. Look at verse 5. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then, know then, that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. God is the one who made me suffer. Yes, we, we can all agree on that much, but I think he's actually put me in the wrong. In other words, my suffering is unjust. Imagine if, you were walking down the street, and someone jumped out of an alley and attacked you. And if you're defenseless to fight back, what would you do? Likely cry out for help, right? Help! Help! I'm being attacked! That's the picture in verse 7. It says, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help. But there's no justice. That's the picture. But Job actually thinks God's the mugger. And no one was listening to his cry for help. Therefore, he felt there was no justice. Now, was this unjust? I think we can admit that. Was God wrong to do this, though? No. Not at all. Definitely not. But if you think about it, did Job deserve to suffer hell on earth? No. On one level, it was unfair from a human standpoint. Job wasn't a sinner because his sins had been forgiven, but it felt like God was treating him like one. I felt it was unfair. And while Bildad just keeps ranting about what he imagines hell to be like, Job can describe it from the inside. Look at verse 8. It says, He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side. And I am gone, and my hope he has, pull, he has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He says he's like a king who's lost his crown and whose city has been besieged. And I 
visited Israel a few years ago, I was fascinated by the story of Masada. If you don't know the story of Masada, Masada is a mountain in, near the Dead Sea, and it's got a rock fortress built into the top of it, uh, like a steep hilltop, like a plateau, about 400 meters high, and it's extremely difficult to reach the top. During the war with the Romans in about AD 73, about a thousand Jewish rebels fled to Masada. And when the Romans found out, they sent troops to surround the place and to put a siege on the fortress. And when the but then when they got there, they found well, the Jews have the high ground, obviously. They had plenty of supplies to last a long siege. So the Romans changed their plan of attack a bit. And they tried to build a siege ramp up to the top of the mountain by moving just tons of earth and dirt up to the side of Masada. But the Jews would just, again, ta- attack from above, and they'd be able to prevent the construction of the ramp. So the Romans allegedly enslaved the family members and friends of those who were in the fortress. And they had them build the ramp for them. They weren't going to attack them. It was an incredible feat that they had them do. Eventually, they had built a mountain to reach the top of this other mountain. And though the Jews never gave the Romans satisfaction, and they committed mass suicide before they got to the top. But you can see, if you're there, the remnants of the ramp can still be seen 2,000 years later. It's incredible. And I thought of this story as I studied this week because Job felt like God was building a siege ramp against him to attack him. You see that in verse 12? His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. And, he, and Job just didn't understand why God was treating him as an enemy. It's like he counts me as his adversary in verse 11. Not only had God seemingly attacked him, he had also painfully isolated him. Look at verse 13. God has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. So those who should have been closest to him, taking care of him, had gone one of four routes. Much of his family had died. I can't fault them. But then his wife encouraged him to give up on God. Many friends had just completely abandoned him, including his his brothers and sisters, it seems. And, And those who didn't abandon him were judging him now. He had been failed and forgotten, estranged, and ignored, despised, and abhorred. This might as well describe how miserably lonely hell is. In verse 20, Job talks about how all this 
wreaked havoc on his physical well-being. It says, my bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Now, throughout the book, Job's been begging God for justice and vindication. Now he's going to beg his friends for something as well. Look in verse 21. It says, Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Hear his cry? These can teach us an extremely valuable lesson as we observe those around us who are hurting all the time. We can, we can know God and still suffer and perish. Therefore, so friends should have mercy. True friends should have mercy on those who suffer. Job is desperately pleading for mercy from those who say they were his friends. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. To receive mercy is to receive, is to not receive something that we deserve, like a convict who would be begging a judge. But having mercy can also just mean to show compassionate care or love to others around us. Joe may be asking for either of those or both. Like, give, uh, friends, what, whatever I've done, whether or not I deserve this, please just show me mercy. Care for me in this time. Even if God is the one sending the hardships, we should still have mercy on each other. Not judging that needy person for being lazy or sinful but loving them in Jesus' name. Not holding it against those who hurt you, but still showing them the mercy of Christ. Not assuming someone else will care for someone, but stepping in and doing it yourself. We've got to show up by hospital bedsides with prayer, Couches with tissue boxes, doorsteps with meals, funeral homes with hugs, and so on. We have received unbelievable mercy from God. We must never withhold it from others. Now, you sense how Job is feeling in these moments? Miserable, despairing, desperate. Well, this chapter is about to take one of the, the most stunning turns in the entire book. We are coming up to one of the most monumental and memorable statements in all of Job. When, despite his despair, Job is going to declare his audacious trust in God. He first longs that his words would be proven true one day, that he would be vindicated. Look in verse 23. 
Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Job's wishes that his words would be recorded in a book or on a stone, wherever, so that when the proof finally comes out, people would know he was true all along. Now, isn't it wonderful that we're reading his words in a book? (laughs) But then, Job makes a great leap from yearning and longing to faith-filled confidence and hope. Job is attacked and isolated in desperate pain, and yet... Look at verse 24. It says, I owe that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Wow! So, even if you won't love me and show me mercy, I know God will. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Here's what we learn from this. Hey, we may suffer even though we know God, but also, take this to heart, we can know that God lives and he will vindicate his people. We can know by faith and with confidence that God lives and that he will vindicate his people. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Though it doesn't feel like it, God God has not abandoned me. He's there. He lives. Of this I am certain. Job was probably preaching to himself in that moment. And even if I die, he lives. When verse 25 says, And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. The word for earth can also be translated as dust and likely refers to Job's grave. So, better than a eulogy written to honor me, better than a gravestone etched with my best qualities, I have a living Redeemer who will defend me for all eternity. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job was coming to the realization that he might not see vindication within his lifetime. But he confidently affirmed that one day, even if it had to be after death, he would see God. That after his skin was destroyed, he would not be taken to the king of terrors, but that he would be resurrected and escorted into the presence of God, the king of love, his redeemer. To redeem something means to buy back or to restore or to free from distress or harm. So, for example, slaves could be set free from slavery by being redeemed 
bought and then freed. In biblical times, a redeemer referred to someone who was usually a close relative or friend of yours who was covenantally tied to you, promising to stand up for you when you could not stand up for yourself, whether for a, a bad sickness or even death. I mean, you could not stand, they'd stand for you. So redeemers were trusted to avenge murders or to safeguard lands or to provide for widows or to care for your orphans. If you or your family were in distress, your Redeemer would look out for you. As it turned out, God would act as Job's Redeemer far sooner than he expected here. He wouldn't wait till after Job's death to stand up for him. But Job was like, at the least, I know that in eternity I will be redeemed because God lives. And he couldn't wait. You see that? Whom I shall see for myself, verse 27, my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me, or I am overwhelmed at the thought. Now, it's been a lot of darkness in Job so far. Enjoy this beam of light. (laughs) For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. We can marvel at Job's faith here. We can also marvel that Job's words were far truer than he realized. There is a living God who is now well known as our Redeemer. And who will one day vindicate all of his people, freeing them from sin, rescuing them from hell, and resurrecting them from death. Why can we be so confident of this? Because the true and better Job came along one day, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly innocent life and yet suffered horribly and perished, essentially going through hell on our behalf. But Jesus, the man who died, was also the living God, slain by death, the God of life. And no grave could restrain the God of life. I love how Christopher Ash describes this reality of the gospel. says, It is precisely the bodily resurrection of Christ that gives us the assurance that Job's confidence was not wishful make-believe, but sure and certain hope. The Father stood upon Christ's tomb and acted as his Redeemer to vindicate him by resurrection. This same God will stand upon the grave of every man or woman in Christ to act as our Redeemer. And on the last day, we will stand justified and vindicate him before him by grace. Jesus Christ has become our Redeemer who lives forevermore. Unless, of course, he hasn't for you yet. Because you've maybe refused to believe in him until now. 
I would urge you to look to Christ today and find everything you need in Him. We must come to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Because only then will we receive true life and vindication one day before Him. So I encourage you today, forsake your sins. They're not worth it. Okay? Turn to Christ, believing that He died and rose for you. And you too can have this firm assurance and hope that your Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. Christ's life is what ultimately gives us any hope of the injustices of this life being rectified one day. Because when seemingly unjust sufferings happen, there's often no hope here on earth. At least it feels that way. When People are given bodies or brains that don't function very well. When children die on beaches because a cruel regime sent them running from home. When loved ones come down with cancer or dementia or worse. When natural disasters indiscriminately take hundreds of lives. When people are tragically abused various ways, leaving them scarred. When babies are murdered by the millions in abortion clinics. Where is the hope for justice? The solution for Injustice is often not found in this life. The only hope for our sufferings being redeemed is found in Christ in eternity. The only hope for believers being vindicated in the future is a resurrection. The only hope for seeing death completely undone is in resurrection. The only hope for seeing injustices reversed is in the fact that our Redeemer lives. So one day, all of our sufferings and all of our pains will make sense in God's grand plan. So when they don't now, we must look ahead. We must look forward to resurrection. Christ's resurrection, along with our future resurrection, is awesome, amazing good news. Except that it's not for some. For some, resurrection will mean devastation. And as Job concludes this chapter, he turns the tables on Bildad and his other friends. And Bildad had just warned Job, Job, you've, you've got to fear God because the wicked will be judged. And now Job goes... Actually, you should fear God because he's going to redeem me. We know, we can know that God lives and will vindicate his people so, so enemies should have fear. If you refuse to know God until the day you die, I'm afraid to say that you should be afraid. In verse 28, it might seem like Job just careens back to the negative side of things, but not quite. 
This very logically flows from the hope he just declared. If Job is a true believer, and if Job is truly suffering innocently, then that means his friends are choosing the wrong side. That means that they're misrepresenting God and therefore opposing God in his ways. Look in verse 28. If you say how we will pursue him and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword that you may know there is a judgment. Bildad, you're right. God's judgment and wrath should be feared but it's not resting on me. It's coming for you. If God is my Redeemer and God lives, be afraid. Watch your backs. This is the hope that we as believers can cling to. If God is for us, who can be against us? And though we shouldn't flaunt that in people's faces, this should provide a a solemn warning to anyone living opposed to God. If God is for us, be very careful you're for him as well. Because Our Redeemer has a sword. And Revelation 19 tells us that he will return wielding it. So if you are opposing him today, take heed and run to the saving mercy of Christ. It is your only hope. And may this remind the rest of us of the importance of warning our friends who are in danger. I'm going to end here. This warning hanging in the air, because that's how Job ends. Resurrection is either the best news ever or the worst news ever. Which will it be for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your life. Thank you for sending Christ to suffer and die on our behalf. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that the grave now lies empty. And that we can look forward to one day seeing you face to face. May we cling to that hope. May we trust you in the meantime. May we run to you every day, for every day your mercies are new. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.